This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. It's a guy jeans podcast. My next guest, Roger Bloom, retired from the California Department of Fish and Wildlife in 2022. He served the California Department of Fish and Wildlife in many capacities since his start in 1994, including, but not limited to, fisheries chief, inland fisheries program manager, statewide native fishes coordinator, heritage and wild trout program leader, and regional wild trout biologist. He has worked on many projects throughout California, including chemical treatments, habitat restorations, aquatic sampling, genetic sampling, research, fishing regulations, public outreach, and many others. Some of the topics that we're going to talk about with Roger is the California Heritage Trout Challenge, climate change and trout, the 2021 statewide regulation changes, the Golden Trout Complex, the internet and how it affects to fisheries, fish genetics, angler satisfaction, and challenges in the future of California fisheries. So without further ado, Mr. Roger Bloom. Roger, how you doing? I'm doing great. Good morning. Thanks for being on my podcast. Absolutely. So super stoked, man. I got so much stuff to talk to you about, <laughs> which is going to be fun. You just recently retired, huh? I did. I did. Uh, it's been like right about a year now. What's that like? You know, it's, it's pretty awesome and it's kind of a cliche, but I feel like I'm busier now than when I was working, but it's a different busy. So it, it's, it's just been great. I know. I saw you at one of the shows, right? And, um, I think you were, you were doing something there. Were you working or were you just at the show? Um, let's see. So I, I'm currently, I guess I'm semi-retired. Um, I'm uh-huh. working at uh, fly fishing, especially the fly shop in uh, Sacramento. So it's, there's a good chance I may have seen you at either the international sportsman's expo or Pleasanton. So I was, okay. I was working at, working in their booth. You know, I had no idea you were working at a, at a fly shop. Have, have you always done that? Uh, no, this oh. is brand new. I am, I am still learning uh, that aspect of the industry. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's exciting and it's new and I get to talk fishing and, you know, I've been, I've been a fly fisher for a long time. So, uh, and, and honestly, when I retired, I had all these prototype ideas in my mind of patterns and I just started <laughs> going to the fly shop and I've known Rick Anderson, the owner for years. And he just was like, you know, why don't you just work here? <laughs> and I said, you know what? Are you serious? He's like, yeah, why not? So that's kind of how it started. I don't know if they realize how lucky they are and that they have such a knowledgeable person working in the shop, man. Um, he's super grateful. And, um, you know, I, I can get off on tangents when we have customers <laughs> come in, you know, because uh, I'm pretty passionate about what I used to do in a former life. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's super fun working in the shop and a great group of guys. And I, and I, I love the shop and super proud of the shop and what we have. So yeah, it's been, it's been a great way to kind of segue into retirement. That's awesome. So let's talk about the uh, California Heritage Trout Program. And for those who don't know, what is it? Um, yeah, so it's a, a angler recognition program that uh, the department started in, I think, 2003. Uh, we initially uh, started it in the process in 2000, and it, and it stems from 
me going to shows and realizing that a lot of people, uh, anglers specifically, didn't know of the diversity of native trout that we had in California. And so I, you know, after going to show after show after show, I realized we got to do something to kind of change that. Um, and so in 1998, we established the Heritage Trout Program, and, and a part of that was to promote native trout restoration and, and uh, education. Mm-hmm. So about that time, the Wyoming Department of uh, Wildlife, Fish and Wildlife had come up with the Cut Slam. So it was brand new. And so I reached out to those guys, Ron Remick specifically. He was kind of the, the guy that created it. And I started talking to him about that and wanted to replicate it because I, I, I found it fascinating. My wife and I went there and we did the cut slam. And I was like, we got to have something like this in California. But, it, but we didn't want to do exactly the same thing. And that's basically a program that acknowledges anglers that catch for the, for the uh, Wyoming one, the four different cutthroats. And we have way more native trout than, you know, just four. So after about three years, starting in 2000 and ending in 2003, we came up with a program that acknowledged anglers that catch six uh, native trout in California in their original watersheds. Um, And we hemmed and hawed about the name. You know, I I threw out the the California Heritage Trout six-pack. That got denied. Um, We had we had all kinds of fun trying to figure out that aspect and the number too, because we have so many. Um, so we got out a map and we figured out, you know, we didn't want anglers necessarily just do this in a weekend. They had to put some time in and do some research because the education, mm-hmm. the big part of it is learning where these fish live in the unique habitats. So we landed on six. Um, and so anglers that catch six, they document uh, and submit an application with a photo uh, they receive a certificate that's kind of customized to their catch with Joe Tomilary's images, mm-hmm. and, and they also get a hat. So, um, so that's kind of it in a nutshell. I think the program is north of 500 anglers that have completed it to date. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, right now we're kind of in a holding pattern for the Paiute because right now, given our restoration, we had to kind of uh, close that fishery down, at least the ones that would qualify. So hopefully in the future, that's a whole nother aspect in the story we could talk about. Um, anglers will be able to go after the Paiutes. And some anglers were lucky enough to get some early on in the challenge. Uh, but there's still plenty of opportunities to get the six if, uh, if you put in the work and talk to folks like you and realize where those fish are. Here's some feedback for you. And, and let me let me clarify this. So you were the one or one of the people responsible for the Heritage Trout Program, it sounds like. Yeah, so that was early awesome. on. I, was, I spent a lot of years in that program, the Heritage and Wild Trout Program. In 2000, I was a regional wild trout biologist for Southern California. And that's when I came up with the idea and worked with Ron in, in Wyoming. Um, so I spent a, a large part of my career either as a regional wild trout biologist or in the statewide crew running around doing wild trout work and then, and then moved on. But uh, yeah, that was a, a large part of my career at the department working in that program. Did you write the book that goes along with that too? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I ghost wrote it. So I had my staff uh, write it so they could get, you know, some writing experience, but the design, the format, the concept, the artwork on the front, all of that stuff. I, 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 I worked on uh, for probably about two or three years. And so, yeah, you, did you get a copy of that? Of course, man. And yeah. I, and I, what a beautiful book. And I'm, I, you know, quote, don't quote me on this, but is, is that book free if people want it? It, it is. And yeah. there was, you know, classic California bureaucracy, they wanted to sell it. And so initially, because it's a beautiful book, it's a, it's a coffee it table type style. Um, a lot of photos. We put a lot of effort in into maximizing the photos and the maps. It's and and have it as a guide. But I, I felt really uncomfortable, you know, trying to make it and, and charge it uh, to the anglers. So I found some grant funding and we got an initial run to print the first uh, version. Uh, they're basically they ran out of them. Um, I've got some before I left. I asked uh, the <laughs> program lead. I'm like, hey, I'm working at a fly shop. I will, I will be selective and try to get these out to uh, folks, you know, that show that passion. Yeah. Um, but I do believe they're planning on doing another run, and okay. and hopefully those will be free as well. Yeah, I got, I got one. 
I, I don't know where I got it. I think I, I might've got it from you at one of the, the meetings in Sacramento or something. I'm yeah. Sure. I wanted to make sure, you know, cause having them in the shop and having just like a, a shop copy. So mm-hmm. especially where you're at with where you're juxtaposed to all those fish on the Kern, um, I, in the club. So I really wanted the shops and the clubs to have one so they could use as kind of a reference. So I'm, I'm glad you got one. Well, feedback, I, I'm, I've got, a, uh, another question too, but I'm going to give you some feedback on, you know, uh, since you created that program, um, it's helped me, uh, guide people, um, you know, in the areas where I'm at, you know, for the golden trout and the little Kern golden and the Kern River rainbow. Um, and I just wanted to let you know that, you know, that's created, uh, you know, some, some work for, for us down here. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I figured it would be. <laughs> yeah, a, man. Oh, big great. time. People come from yeah, all over the world, man, to, yeah. to catch golden trout. You know, that's like a big deal. Yeah, we did. There was a period where, um, I was running clinics throughout the state for anglers that just, you know, wanted to go out. And so it was a, almost basically a free guided trip and we would camp out at peppermint and some of the other places. And I would take them down to the forks and, yeah. uh, to clicks Creek. And, you know, we would do the rounds. Um, and it, that's probably one of the most enjoyable, you know, rewarding things I ever did was, you know, working with those anglers to get their challenge and take them to that unique place. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you guys are seeing, Angler's still coming in and asking for that. That's awesome. So how many fish are there in the state of California? Native uh, fish. Na- native uh, native trout, trout. Yeah. Native trout, 11. 11. Um, <clears throat> 11 as it stands, there are some unique fish uh, in the in the red band complex, potentially up in Klamath, that we may add to that list. Really? Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean... It, that's the that's the challenge and we may touch on genetics but yeah. as you go down that that rabbit hole uh we start to see some unique things get teased out um so we we may add to that list that's awesome and, yeah. and and from what i understand uh the uh, bull trout was in that mix there for a while or is it is it still or is is it extinct so functionally it's extinct um Uh as far as we know there was a action um in i want to say maybe the early 90s to do a a reintroduction program with some organ bull trout oh Um, awesome and yeah it was it was cool and uh we had some challenges in regards to private property um and uh there has been some recent acknowledgments that there may still be some bull trout in the mcleod drainage um but we're 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 kind of challenged with uh access to be able to verify and get the genetics but uh there is the chance that there's still some remnant fish from that reintroduction from the organ fish uh still bumping around in the mcleod so I heard you say red band complex, and then I also know there's a golden trout complex. So would you mind talking about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so you're well familiar with the, with the golden trout complex, and that is the Kern River Rainbow, uh, California golden trout, and the Little Kern golden trout. And so we kind of refer to that as the complex of that Kern basin um, and where those fish are, are endemic. We also kind of use that in regards to uh, the upper Sacramento uh, complex for red bands, which have the Goose Lake, the Warner Lakes, uh, and the McLeod. So we kind of use that terminology to kind of bundle those those species and those subspecies in those areas. Okay, that's so cool. So I got a question genetically uh, for you. Um, so we have, you know, the you know, Kern River Rainbow, which they say has been, you know, uh, genetically spawned uh, in, in with other rainbows coming that have been introduced into the into the Kern and, and whatnot. And over the years, um, they've been uh, planting in the 20 mile section of the Kern and basically from my shop up to the Johnsondale Bridge area, which is 20 miles there. They've been planting fish that uh, that don't spawn. Um, and so how's that been working to your knowledge? And then also, you know, one of the things that um, I, I've, I've always been kind of baffled about is the fish that they stock in Lake Isabella that that can reproduce, that end up going up the, the North Fork of the Kern. Do you have any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, so in regards to the Isabella allotment, I, I can't speak to, you know, their strategy on how those – I guess those would be considered diploid. I'm not sure 100%. Uh-huh. Um, generally, when um, – in regards to stocking, we created a process. That was another thing I worked on was that the regional biologist would evaluate the risks associated with endangered species or native fish. Mm-hmm. So that would be like the current. And they, we allow, we allow some flexibility on making that call. So if they feel like those fish in Isabella really aren't going to be able to make it up or they're in a number that are so low, they'll likely not have an effect. That could be the call. I, I, I wouldn't know how they're making those guys. Okay. Um, um, in regards to the main stem, it sounds like they have gone through that process and those would be trip triploid fish likely yeah. going to Johnsondale. Um, and for that exact reason is they feel there is a risk there. So they have to be sterile fish going in at Johnsondale. Okay. And so when, when somebody catches, a, uh, let's say a wild fish, you know, down towards my shop, um, would that be considered a, a Kern river rainbow? In regards to the heritage trout challenge or just in general, would we call it? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like let's say for the heritage trout program, like would, would that be like, if it had all the characteristics of a current river rainbow and it was caught, you know, like we're seeing wild fish all the way down to, you know, the mouth of the, of the uh, river going into Lake Isabella in that whole zone. So I'm not sure. Probably, I'm, I'm sure this year you're going to see a lot of that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that that's a great question, and, and I think you know going back to the challenge concept, it, it wasn't a, a, a model and a process that was supposed to you know hold people accountable to genetically pure fish. It was an educational mm-hmm. um, you know project. Yeah. So when people talked about catching a Kern River rainbow, if they came to me and asked me about it, I would say you know ultimately do the homework, understand the history behind that drainage read Banky or, you know, you know, mm-hmm. talk to, to, talk to you guys at that shop. Um, and I, I would send them up to the forks, um, mm-hmm. just cause there's a higher probability that they would get something that looked, you know, quote unquote, like a Kern river rainbow. Yeah. Um, just cause the probability goes up in relation to if somebody was down at Johnsondale or down by the shop and they caught something and it looked like a Kern River rainbow and they sent us a picture and I've seen thousands and thousands of pictures of it <laughs> um, along with the other people that review these things. And we look at every single picture. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if it makes the cut and they generally, you know, are showing, you know, cause you got to turn in six. So the other five are legit, you know, yeah. they probably would acknowledge that. If, uh-huh. it, if the picture came in and they were blunt fin fish, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> then we probably would say, hey, you know, why don't you go higher up and try to get something that looks more like a Kern River rainbow, you know? Yeah. Um, and we get those. We And I've seen those pictures from those stalkers at Johnsondale and, and yeah. reach out and say, hey, we really want you to understand what a Kern River rainbow is. So that's kind of a hopefully an all right uh, response to that question. Um, yeah. but we really want it. We want it to be educational. We want people to really understand the history, enjoy it and have fun and not make it, you know, a genetic homework assignment. The last few years, uh, kind of getting off the, the current river rainbow um, fish, but we've been seeing a lot more Browns uh, in our system and I'm not sure why. And we're talking the, the, the North Fork as well. Have you heard of that, or have you heard of people catching more Browns um, as well? No, no, but it doesn't surprise me. You know, I, looking at the data in the program for years and years and years, we've gone through drought cycles before. Yeah, and generally we see a pivot and a change on, especially on the West Slope Sierra Nevada waters and drought conditions. Um, we see some changes uh, in regards to Browns dominating in certain reaches where they weren't before. Ah. Uh-huh. Or at least a, a composition, composition shift to browns because they can deal with, you know, some elevated water temperatures a little bit better than some of the other strains of rainbow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm not surprised. I think, you know, we may you may see something different this year uh, <laughs> in regards to water velocity, you know, browns, you know, that you get higher water velocities, colder water. And I think they then lose their advantage. And so you may see it pivot back. Okay. Interesting. That's what I thought. So too, that's interesting. So let's go, let's switch over to the uh, South Fork of the Kern, if you don't mind. Um, and 
you know, being up in the South Fork of the Kern uh, quite a bit, you know, I've seen different types of uh, golden trout, um, kind of maybe hybrids, where I'm seeing some that are that look, you know, almost pure, and then some that you can tell that have like spots on them and they're kind of have more of a rainbow uh, cue to them, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, is that from uh, hybrid hybridization as well from like the Kennedy Meadows area? Do you know anything about that? Yeah, it could be. You you may be spot on. Um, mm-hmm. I I gave up on trying to make that call back in the day. You know, we had some yeah. some some concepts of you know no spots below the lateral line, heavy thick spots in the caudal penuncle, and we thought mm-hmm. you know that that was the quintessential you know California golden trout. Anything you know that was pale or had you know profuse spotting. But what we found out really is you got to be careful, um, and that there's there's some variability in those fish um, in regards to the genetics. When you run genetics, and we have those pictures, and I worked with Christy and Brian and Ken, and you know we looked at those fish, and you're probably you're probably right, especially in those lower sections, you know, mm-hmm. um, below Shaper, obviously. Uh, yeah. But I, I'm always really careful and tentative to say when I look at a picture, oh, yeah, that's 100% pure California golden trout because yeah. I've been burned. So I think you're probably you're probably spot on, but just a little bit of caution and trying to say pure genetically uh, fish with morphology. Uh, you know, thinking about what you just said about the brown trout, you know, in low water years or drought years, you know, the that uh, stream, the South Fork of the Kern, has really uh, seen a population increase in brown trout, in my opinion, for sure, in, in some sections. Have you been up there in a while and seen that? You know, it's it's been a while since I've yeah. been up there. Um, I, I've heard that from other folks. I, I think I think the guys have been monitoring that. They always have that crew that goes up there all the way up to Templeton, and they you know they've been doing electrofishing. I'm not sure if they're still on that on that wagon, but I'm not surprised to hear yeah. that you know, they've got a leg up in in the drought years. I told this story uh, on another podcast, but I was sitting eating lunch, you know, in uh, in a meadow up there, and. Uh, I was watching this little golden trout feeding <laughs> and this brown trout came out from underneath the banks, you know, pretty good size one and just inhaled that golden trout. It was, it was pretty impressive, you know, to see that there was that big a fish in such a small stream, you know, crazy. Oh yeah. They, they do well. And you know, you know, the geography that, that section right below Templeton barrier uh, yeah. always, ha- always we can count on big trout, you know, big browns <laughs> in there with little tiny goldens inside them for sure. Yeah. That's crazy, man. So what are your uh, thoughts on the climate change, you know, with all this different stuff that's going on um, in regards to the streams and, you know, warmer water and that sort of thing? Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, it's it's pretty spooky, to be honest with you. And, you know, we, we kind of got lulled into some, some different things. And obviously, uh, you probably remember we did a golden trout rescue um, when those fish up there at Volcanic Creek were getting in a pretty uh, bad situation in regards to desiccation of the habitat. So you got that one. That's pretty obvious. The, the yeah. thing that scares me the most about that is these wild fluctuations. So we have a drought year, and then we have this year. And one thing that uh, um, people don't always realize, in the drought condition, we saw hyperfreezing events. So in those upper elevation streams, especially for golden trout, if you don't have sufficient snowpack, I mean like zero, um, there's not an insulating layer, and those streams can freeze all the way down to the uh-huh. bottom. Interesting. So we had some we had some pretty significant efforts in the drought years uh, to go and look at uh, populations throughout the state and you know evaluate those risks. And and what we were seeing is you know a declining population, and we always kind of thought, well, you know, it's the streams are drying up. Um, but what we failed to do, uh, because it's difficult, is to go in the middle of January. Um, but through the Paiute Restoration Project, um, we started to go and look at those conditions, and we found that we were likely losing fish in the middle of winter because there was no snowpack to insulate the, the water. Um, so it was like a double whammy on, on the drought years. 
Now you stack that, like last year we had, you know, pretty uh, significant uh, drought conditions or at least a lack of precipitation. And you got this year, which is, you know, the polar opposite. And the other thing, you know, it's everybody thinks, oh, this great water, we've got all this snow. But what ends up happening is you've got a late spawn on those upper elevation, you know, native trout populations. And they're coming out of the gravel sometimes as late as August. Wow. So in the, in the high country, you know, they got water, that's great. But if you're, you know, coming out of the gravel in August or July, you have a slope, you know, uh, a, a very short period as a juvenile fish to put on the weight that's got to carry you through the winter. Um, so you stack those little, you know, subtleties on, on top of each other, and it, it can be pretty significant um, with desiccation and winter mortality and then just a, a shorter growing period to get you through. Um, it, it, it's pretty spooky to me. There's some streams that, and this, this is crazy to me, and I, I kind of always have, un, uh, you know, wondered about, the stream itself, but I've seen the stream, one a, a golden trout stream go completely dry and then, um, and there's nothing there, you know, it's just dirt and then go back on a, on a really good water year and the fish are back. It's just, yeah. you know what I mean? It was like, what, <laughs> you know, it's just uh, unbelievable how, how some of that works, you know? Yeah, we, we saw that in our, uh, we called it the drought assessment. And if people are interested, it's, it's on the website under the wild trout program. It's, it's pretty oh, cool, cool reading. Yeah. And, and it, it's amazing guy. You know, we saw the same thing. You're like, do these things go subterranean? Like what's happening? <laughs> yeah. Um, they're, they're resilient. I mean, you got to hand it to these fish. They've gone through these cycles before. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also saw some really amazing things on the McLeod where, we would track those those red bands, and we would have uh, a good water year, and we would go in and look, and there wouldn't be any fish, even though there was bankful, you know, 50 CFS, and they weren't there. And then we would go into a drought cycle, and those particular areas of the creek were the ones that dried up. So there's wow. really cool, like, site fidelity and range fidelity of these fish that have, you know, over time – you know, somehow figured out that those areas are not conducive for long-term, you know, stability for them. Um, and then you've got areas that, you know, go completely dry and there's a lot in the, you know, in the low elevation current basin and they repopulate those because they're highly productive and those fish can get access to them. Right. Mm-hmm. Either from, from the top or the bottom. And, and they're just amazingly resilient uh, all the way around. Are you seeing uh, up by Europe in the Sacramento area? I'm assuming, yeah. yeah. Are you guys just seeing huge amounts of water as well? Because we're, we're, yeah, we're, yeah, it's, it's, it's been insane. I've, I've never <laughs> seen anything like, and it's more of the snowpack, right? I mean, yeah. we, we had some rain on snow events. I know the current, I saw videos of the current. It was amazing, <laughs> just insane. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's statewide. It's, it's going to be really interesting the response of the fisheries and, mm-hmm. you know, how long our, our, uh, our, our limb of the hydrograph goes into the summer. Um, I, again, you know, the climate change issue, the other thing I failed to mention, and I, you know, I always worry about the current because it seems like it's habitually burning. Um, <laughs> right. I don't know why. I've seen every mountain burn, man. <laughs> yeah. It, it's crazy. And even burned twice. Like a little bit <laughs> crazy and gave me gray hairs because it would burn. And then three years later it would burn again. And we'd go back and make sure the fish were there. But yeah. that, you know, it, these fish are resilient. They can take high water and same with the bugs. But when you add that silt and um, from the post-fire issue, yeah. then it, that can really do some damage. And you saw the current, you, you know, yeah. and all the sediment that worked through there over the years. So um, um, I'm sure you've experienced it. I, I, yeah, I've experienced a lot of the, the river just getting uh, hammered in different times of the year, silts and fires and runoff. But this year, I've never seen it so big for one you know at forty six thousand cubic feet uh, it was just unbelievable but i was down there a couple days ago uh, just checking out areas you know close to where it comes into the lake and it's carved out new runs and just looks amazing like i'm just going whoa look at this it just created a whole new river channel in some areas you know yeah i i just i uh, and I see that when I, I used to travel the state, um, we would see that on, you know, high flow events, the 97 event, the 07 event. 
and some of these water, you know, if, if, if it's, if it's the right condition, it can really do, uh, wonders for, you know, a stream or a river, right? Yeah. Um, it can carve out new habitat. It redistributes bed load and gravel. The crazy thing that I'm just, I'm super stoked to see probably not, you know, I'm sure people have, have had unfortunate luck, but the, uh, to Larry Lake, um, and you talked oh. about the Kern River Rainbow and the Kern Basin. Yeah, that thing coming back and and the story behind them, the potential nexus to the fish that you have in the Kern Basin is amazing. And, and most people were not aware of any of that history of that lake and the connection to the San Joaquin until this year. So interesting. So there's so much water going through the town of Bakersfield right now. It's going right into that lake, huh? It's got to be filling. Yeah. It, yeah, it's 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 reestablishing the footprint that was there, you know, prior to the diversions. You need a year like this and the uh, of this magnitude to kind of do that, but it's kind of got people thinking back into the 1800s when that lake was there, which gets back to the origin story of you know access of coastal rainbow trout to to the current, which you know a lot of people forget that you know that was a a thing that happened at one point. Yeah, so I want to talk about the state. Uh, regulation changes um, and the reason why I want to talk about that is um, you were involved in that and I remember uh, actually traveling up to Sacramento um, to hear you know uh, you speak and some other uh, associates of yours speak and you were you were telling me and and one of the other gentlemen was telling me that there was a lot of feedback going on all over the, the Sierra and California and you know, a lot of negative feedback that you guys were having to deal with and, and that sort of thing. Um, you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, that's, that, <laughs> that was rough. Was huh? <laughs> <laughs> that one was a challenge. And, yeah. uh, but, but, but again, it was a process. I'm, I'm super proud of what we did. Um, there were town halls. We took a lot of comments, both, you know, you know, verbally at the town halls written, we read every single one. Yeah. Um, and, and, that was the point we wanted to have engagement instead of doing it in a black box. So I was super proud of, you know, having that aspect of it to have and get feedback from anglers. Um, but it was a challenge, you know, I thought I was going to get lynched uh, in Bishop when I did that. <laughs> um, yeah. It was, it was, it was a challenge, but, but it was good because, you know, we had and allowed that public input. Uh, I think the greatest thing that came from that, although we reduced the complexity of the regs, um, and that was one of our main goals, I think a, a greater accomplishment in that process was the public involvement and the fact that the regional biologists had to review the regs in their backyard that they may not have thought about or didn't even know how the regs were established um, because the people that did it were retired or gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of good, it, it took a lot of work and, and a lot of uh, evaluations from regional staff and us in headquarters, working with the public, reviewing all that stuff, working with the, uh, the NGOs, Caltrout and Trout Unlimited, and to try to strike a balance, right? Because yeah. I think it was one of the commissioners said, well, if, if, uh, if one group is super happy um, and, uh, and, and that's it, you probably didn't do it right, but if everybody's slightly unhappy, you probably hit the mark. And so um, I, I felt like we did a bunch of compromise. We tried to find the best fit. And more importantly, uh, we said that the department should go back and review and see if things need to be changed, if there wasn't written in stone, that this was a process and moving forward to evaluate that. So, uh, again, super proud of that. I think it's a work in progress. Um, there's probably some things they're going to have to change given the feedback. Uh, it's going to be difficult when you have years like this, where you've got all kinds of uh, other variables are going to affect the fishing and the fisheries. But, um, uh, there was pretty, some, some significant changes and that I hope the department is still monitoring and looking at moving forward. And what was the reasoning for all the, the changes? Was it because uh, people were having a hard time catching fish or, um, you know, just trying to open it up to more anglers uh, in California, yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah. So there was a lot of a lot of things in social media and speculation on why uh, you know that was started. You know, some people said we were trying to sell more licenses, or you know, open it up to sell more licenses. The the reality behind it, because I was there mm-hmm. in the beginning, was that 
people were continually complaining to the commission and the department that the regulations were too complex and they couldn't understand them. And there was, you know, 7.5, the special regulations, there was too many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent many years of my career explaining how to navigate the regs because we're one of the most complex, diverse habitats and fisheries in the whole nation when it comes to, to that. So we're by design after a hundred years, you know, have a lot of complexity in the regs. So the main reason, if not the only reason why we took that on was direction from the commission to try to reduce the complexity, especially in 7.5, where we just had hundreds of special regs. And, you know, again, when people would ask the commission, why do you have this reg? The department would go, well, that was written a long time ago that, you know, and we didn't have a great answer for some of those. Mm -hmm. So it really was about trying to make it easier to understand, simplify it, and then be able to kind of segue into an online version um, that would be easier to read um, through the fishing guide and or the online rigs. So what do you think the the overall angler satisfaction uh, ratio is out there? Do you think people are stoked and they're catching a bunch of, of fish out there and are, are they getting kind of bummed? In regards to the regs or just in yeah, general? Yeah, just, well, in general. I mean, um, you know, with the regs too, but, I mean, do you think that the fishing is, is uh, people are, are having a good time out there and they, they feel like they're catching a bunch of fish? You know, so great question. Uh, and, again, I don't have my thumb on the pulse as much as I used to, but yeah. uh, I, I think it's really site-specific. I think in regard to the reg change, I think some people are super stoked and there's some guides out there that are really happy. There's some year round opportunities that weren't there before. Um, I think there's some people that really like the way things work. Nobody really likes change generally. So I think there's some anglers that are upset with it. I think some anglers are stoked about it. Yeah. Uh, I think that there's this overlay also, there's things that I learned through that process where you have resort owners that like to shut down the resort and their facilities and take a break. And so year-round angling, when they you know don't necessarily generate revenue from their business, maybe they don't like it. Yeah. Um, so it was a mix. It was really a lot of social dimensions, uh, epiphanies that I had going, oh, I never thought about that. Like, you know. Yeah. Those are those are really important aspects to consider when you're doing the regs. It's not just biology. It's 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 more than that. But we had this other issue, especially on the east side, where we had hatcheries and disease outbreaks. Right. So mm-hmm. we had allotments drop. Um, so I think people you know, weren't happy about that because they weren't catching the same amount of fish that they were catching. Um, uh, and then I, I think generally around the state people are still getting used to and understanding the reg changes and these, these fisheries, but the, the climate, the drought, uh, even high water makes it difficult for people to have really good angling experiences because it's either too warm. Like we went through hoot owl recommendations on some of the waters and they got too hot during the drought. Yeah. And then, and then it gets too high. And so it's unfishable. And so, you know, anglers are compressed in different areas or they, they can't fish. So, yeah. Um, one of the things I did before I left was a comprehensive angler survey, which was mailed out and provided online for anglers because we haven't done we hadn't done one since 1983. So the department has that data to kind of just get at the basis of are anglers happy? What do they like to fish for? Do they like striped bass? Do they like something? Mm. Um, and I think hopefully they take that data because it's super valuable and we. We did the survey scientifically, um, so it's pretty pretty robust to reflect California anglers. Hopefully, they take that along with all the other uh, input that they get to make sure they're focusing their energy to manage those fisheries so people are, good, are having good experiences. But some stuff like drought and high water is kind of out of everybody's control. What is the number one game fish in California? Trout. Trout. And then what do you yeah. think? What, what's next? Um, I think the next, it was, so just to kind of summarize that, I don't have the report in front of me, but I saw the data before I retired and, um, surprisingly, maybe not to you, you're turning into a warm water guy if you aren't already. (laughs) Sunfish, dude, bass and striped bass and, you know, uh, so bluegill bass, uh, striped bass 
and catfish that those are, you know, those came up on the list. Those were Mm -hmm. some shockers to us when we saw the data come in trout generally, because we do a lot of planting and it's a very popular fish. Uh, That's still number one. But I think the ones that surprised us, surprised us were the sunfish and the striped bass. That was, that was pretty high. Yeah. Yeah. Fun fish to catch for sure. So what about hatcheries? And do you know any, do you have any info on uh, Kernville hatchery, the poor, the poor hatchery (laughs) that has has weeds growing all around it and stuff right now? Um, Do you have any, do you have any info on that? Again, I don't have my thumb on that one yeah. anymore. You know, the current <laughs> planting basin, you know, its its design and intent was not necessarily to be a broodstock place. We had some some thoughts, and I know, you know, the Kern River folks really wanted to see the Kern River rainbow potentially uh, brought up there and reared there. Yeah. But the, the infrastructure, the plumbing, the water source is, is you know, s- provided some significant challenges for those guys down there mm-hmm. to have that thing function uh, like a lot of people want it to function. Um, so I don't know where they're at. I know that, you know, the regional staff, Brian, um, and the staff down there have been trying to figure out a solution and to make it work. But again, um, yeah. you know, it takes money and potentially just from, a, I, I think the, the water source is a, a big issue down there where they pull the water to run that thing. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if they fixed that yet. I don't know what the status is of it. Yeah. That big pipe that comes out of that uh, powerhouse yep. there. Yeah. For yep. cool water and all that. It was going yep. good, man, for a while. You know, they had, they were building new runs and putting in round runs and they, it was, you know, it was, it was moving forward. It was really cool and everybody was really stoked. And then all of a sudden it just got dropped or something. And, uh, yeah, and, and I, I'm still hopeful that there'll be a program out there. There's yeah. a unique, unique opportunity. I remember talking to Chrissy McGuire in the day and, mm-hmm. and going out to the facility and going, this could be really cool. But again, it's, you know, potentially a money issue. It could be an engineering issue. Yeah. Um, and, and then water quality on the main stem and whether or not they can get the right sufficient cool water there. I, I, I don't know. I'm hopeful. I know there's a lot of energy locally uh, for that, that, project and the current of a rainbow so I'm, I'm crossing my fingers for it i want to go back to the regulations and uh question again um do you think that some of the regulation changes in some areas are going to have an effect on on some of the fish species and the trout species in those areas um or do you think it won't have that big of an effect you know, and that's a, that's a great question. One of the things, you know, we struggled with early on in, uh, in 07, we did 10 waters that we opened up to winter fishing. And that was initially, you know, Hawk Creek and the yeah. upper elements. There was a whole suite of them, right? Yeah. And so we, that was, that was a question like, how are you guys going to monitor this and will there be an effect? Generally speaking, it's, it's my feeling that it takes a lot to affect a fishery, believe it or not. And, and specifically when you have a catch and release, uh, uh, regulation, it's even harder to, to have a significant effect. If you have over harvest, uh, or poaching, which, you know, is just illegal anyway, then there's the potential for something like that to happen. But generally most of those waters were evaluated for that effect. Um, and in the, in the 07 bin, we went really conservative and did a catch and release during the winter season. So it was a split season. Um, is there the potential for that to happen? Maybe, but I think a lot of it is going to be self-regulating, especially in the winter time, if that's what we're talking about, because it's the fishing's just tough. The fish get really uh, slow. Their metabolism drops. They're mm-hmm. hard to catch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the access gets really difficult. So in the 07, when, when I followed all those waters that we opened up, it was really self-regulated. Generally, the fishing was poor unless you hit the right afternoon hatch or you were there at the right time. It, 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 it really didn't seem to have effect. The biological data, when we went back and looked at all of those waters, uh, generally, either the fishery was either stable or likely was affected by something else. Um, so, like, the drought and high water is going to have way more effect than, you know, a, a, a regulation change. Um, but there is the chance if the bag goes up and people decide to harvest, potentially the angler experience may change. The biomass may shift. The fish will still be there. It's not, 
like I'm fearful of eradication of a population, but the angling experience may change. P uh, fish may get educated. They may get pressured more. Uh, mm -hmm. You may not have that opening day phenomenon that lasts a couple of weeks where the fish are, you know, pretty stupid. Yeah. Uh, you may lose that. Um, but outside of that, it's, it's pretty hard to, to affect a fishery with just angling. You know, some of the areas where I'm at are kind of self-policing. You can't get to anyways. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's like 18 yeah. feet of snow. <laughs> You're not going in there. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and it, uh, the same thing. So one of the waters we opened up in, in 07 was the upper American drainage and the associated tributaries. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those fish, even if you had focal areas that saw increased pressure, fish would come down from the watershed and refill those niches and just reload like, you know, uh, like in a bass fishery, they just reload. And so nice. even some significant focal harvest could be mitigated and compensated for just fish coming from other areas and, and filling those niches. That's cool. So what do you think about the internet and its effects to the fisheries? Um, wow. Yeah. So <laughs> over the course, of, over the course of my career, I've seen pretty significant effects, both good and bad. And, you know, I work in a fly shop now, so I kind of get a taste of it, of uh -huh. people coming in. But, uh, from, from my career in, in monitoring wild trout waters, uh, I could see in the data showed where, uh, this is early internet, when some of the fishing forums or some of the bulletin boards would post a good fishing report, yeah. we would see a, a, a significant increase in angling pressure and, and harvest on some of those in the matter of weeks, where historically without the internet and social media now, especially, um, it would, those things would, the lag periods could be months if it even had any type of an effect. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, to me, you know, standing back and looking at this and watching fisheries and social media develop, um, the, the speed at which the information is transferred and the amount of information anglers can now get, uh, to be able to get access and find these fisheries is unprecedented. And I think it's, you know, it, it's great for people that are learning fishing and they're coming into the sport. Um, but it's also something that nationally no one's ever seen before. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, it's something that us as anglers and, and the resource managers should keep an eye on. Not that you're going to censor social media, yeah. um, but it's definitely something um, like on the East side, I saw some, some stuff getting posted about some, you know, spawning tributaries that historically no one really knew about just the locals. And within days of one social media post, they're all over the place uh -huh. uh, and they're all over the spawning tribs. And so I think it's, it's, it's really, really powerful. It's a powerful tool. It's a powerful effect. Um, and it's one that, you know, as fisheries managers, I don't, we've never had to deal with before, but it's something that needs to be kind of, uh, thought about, considered, and spooled into the, the mindset now. You know, the same thing's going on in the surfing world. You know, they have cameras at every surf spot. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's exactly. crazy. You know, and you could just go on there. Oh, it's it's surfing good there. It's good waves. You know, yeah. uh, go, going back to, uh, you, you're talking about, uh, you know, a fishing blog, fishing report. You know, I back in back in the day, I had, uh, you know, the Kern River Fly Fishing uh, blog, and, and uh, it it was just going off at one time, you know, it was really, um, well received and a lot of people were on it and everything and conversations and pictures and arguments. And it was just, uh, you know, it was like almost like a full-time job <laughs> <laughs> mediating that thing. Right. And eventually I, I just dropped it and took it all down, you know, it was just too much, but, um, you're right, man. It was, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, hot spotting they would call it, you know, um, where, you know, people would show different places and people would be able to figure out where they were and stuff, you know, and that definitely could have an effect for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, going back to the Harris Trout Challenge, um, you know, Andrew Harris, if you know, Andrew, yeah, he and his, uh, I guess, girlfriend or fiance at the time, uh, he was writing articles in Cal Fly Fisher about the challenge and he was super excited about it. You know, that's gonna, you know, he's got a conservation background from UC Davis. And I remember reaching yeah. out to him saying, you know, I love what you're doing. I love the fact you and Kate are going out, but realize if you name names of the creeks, you're kind of robbing some of these anglers from doing the research and, and you know, learning the stuff on their own instead of, uh, you know, 
getting on the internet and that's you know maybe i'm old-fashioned and i grew up a different era but you know putting the time in on the water and learning these these watersheds as opposed to watching a youtube and figuring out the background and where those people are fishing i think you know is better for the resource and makes you a better angler um and in many cases can have an effect on the fishery, especially like on the Heritage Trout Challenge. These are little tiny creeks sometimes. And so, um, and Andrew was super cool. He goes, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. And, and uh, he was super, you know. He's a cool uh, guy. About it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's it's definitely something to consider all of that moving forward. I don't know what you do about it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's just another ethics thing that anglers are going to have to consider moving forward. Yeah. Do you think that there's people in the fish and wildlife that are as passionate about fish species as you? Like I, I, you know, I've known a few of you guys over the years um, that, you know, are so passionate, you know, Christy McGuire and, and other biologists in my area that, you know, literally dedicate their life to, you know, fish and, and, the the resources around them and and whatnot and do you, is there people in the fish and wildlife that are as dedicated as you were and as those guys? Um, I, I think there's still some. Um, mm-hmm. I I think maybe I was an anomaly and I had a lot of guilt, you know, leaving the department because there was expectations for me to 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 do more things and to step up into leadership. Yeah. But I, I that had run its course. I, I still think there's some great people in the department, but there has been a fundamental cultural change in the department in mm-hmm. regards to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I still, again, I still think there's a lot of people out there. But even in the collegiate programs, we just toured Oregon with my youngest, looking at biological programs, and I think there's been a shift because uh, I remember trying to recruit, you know. Uh, wild trout biologist, which I thought was the greatest job ever, and <laughs> yeah. I, we had a hard time finding people. So, I interesting. Think it, it, yeah, I, I mean, to me, it's it was the greatest job on earth. Like, um, yeah. I would have done it for free, you know, when I was young. <laughs> yeah, but but it was really shocking to me as we recruited and trying to you know mentor people coming into the department that there's just this fundamental change, and it's not just California; it's other programs as well. Uh, where they're they're shifting and looking more at uh, different conservation aspects, more ecological function, and less of that traditional wildlife and fisheries management. Um, and then, you know, to couple it, when you're just an avid, passionate, rabbit angler, you know, I never turned off my brain when it came to work. Like, you know, if I wasn't <laughs> working, I was thinking about where we were going to go and find the next wild trout water. So, um, so... I think there's still people out there, but there definitely has been a shift and, and those, those passions and the amount of people that are out there that we can recruit. So what are some of the challenges uh, for the California fisheries that we have? Um, well, we kind of touched on climate change, you yeah. know, that's, that's one for sure. Um, and water allocation, no one likes talking about it, but we all know that <laughs> right. at least in the Central Valley and, and elsewhere, that's an issue, right? There's just a lot of people and not a lot of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the other thing kind of touching on uh, when we talk about anglers is the, the drop in anglers uh, in their participation. We may have good license sales, but I think the, the one data point people fail to look at is the fact that, yeah, our license sales are, you know, staying at whatever, 2.5 million or wherever they at, but we're still growing as a population. So, you know, back in the day when I was growing up in California, you know, the trout opener, my buddies, everybody at, at some level with their family went fishing, right? You didn't, mm-hmm. Maybe not rabid, but, you know, I look at my sons growing up and there's not that in, in the community, at least in Sacramento. So I think there's still you know decent numbers of anglers in california but the representation of anglers per capita in california politically um it is dropped considerably and so that's a that's going to be a huge challenge to have a seat at that table within the state to be able to get the resources and maintain the fisheries um and we talked about the internet that's another one that gives yeah. me cold sweats. um the other one that's kind of a sleeper is the anti angling constituents um i had a file when i was at the department hopefully they they kept it 
um, that I followed in different parts of the world and, and the nation, uh, that one, that one also scares me. Um, and I just, I kind of, uh, helped ghost write, uh, uh, a, a bill opposition in regards to the ban on uh, fur sales. I don't know if you heard about this guy. But no. So, so there was a ban that was passed in California, and your shop guy, you know. So we have Wapsie and Hairline at yeah. Specialty, and Wapsie's uh, interpretation of this legislation in California was that they couldn't sell us fur, and so no rabbit strips, you know, no zonkers, nothing. I interpreted it a little bit different, but um, we had to look at other sources, one of which is Hairline, and that's in Oregon. And Oregon had an identical bill that they were trying to move through to ban the sale of fur products, which would impact a ton of fly tying material. Yeah. Um, so I, I helped kind of write up an opposition and revision request on behalf of specialties with Rick's oversight and we submitted it to the Oregon legislature and luckily uh, they canceled the bill outright. So it's gone. Um, but it's those kind of sleeper things that like you didn't know and you're a shop owner, right? Yeah. So, so these things on the, on the outside without having somebody in the ledge that represents the anglers of California, mm -hmm. uh, all anglers, not just fly tires, right? We're, we're a small little niche group. Um, but more importantly, just the anglers in general of California not having significant representation in the legislature through, uh, you know, an NGO. I think is is a, a big problem, and uh, all anglers, no matter if you're a fly fisherman or traditional gear, should be concerned because there's a lot of us here, but not a, not well organized to be able to follow those bills, to weigh in and squash them when they come up. Um, mm -hmm. So when an anti-angling bill comes up, uh, I don't know who would step up and and represent the anglers of California. Um, there's a few small organizations, but their memberships are small. So that, to me, is a significant challenge facing California. Hmm. That's inter uh, that's interesting. Are you are you seeing like where you guys are? Are you seeing more people getting into fly fishing? Or are you guys seeing it kind of taper off a little bit? What are you guys seeing up there? I think you know, and obviously you're, you're a shop owner, and I think Rick would know a lot more in regards to the data. I, I yeah. think there was a pulse in COVID um, because people were not traveling. I think there was a huge influx of people wanting to try it. Yeah. Uh, because it because of, I don't know if you guys saw it in, in Kernville. Absolutely. But, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So yeah. yeah. So that I think that trend followed through the whole state, likely, um, which is a good thing. Uh, it's also. You know, now we have a whole bunch of people that need to learn how to fly fish and ethically, you know, <laughs> work across waters and whatnot. Yeah. That's a good thing. Uh, so I think there was a, a, a surge. Um, I don't know if that if they're going to stick with it. I mean, it's like the river runs through it paradigm issue. When the movie came out, there right. was a big pulse. Some some folks stuck with it and are still doing it to this day. I think it's it's yet to be determined whether or not they're going to stick through. We we have a pretty good we have an intro to fly fishing class, and it's generally usually full every time we have it. So I think it's it's still holding pretty strong post COVID. Oh, that's cool, Roger. That was amazing, man. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. I don't I don't think uh, the fish and wildlife uh, realizes what they're what they've lost, man. You know somebody uh, somebody who's so passionate about his work and, and everything that you've done. I mean, it's, it's benefited me and, uh, in my business. And I really appreciate everything that you've done for all the fisheries, um, in this area and, you know, in California, man. So thank you very much. Oh, I appreciate it. It means a lot. Um, and, and I'm glad we got to talk. We've known yeah. each other for a while, but we never got to sit down and chat. So this is, this has been great. Thanks for the opportunity. And are you going to be a bass and fly again? absolutely all right well we'll have to tip a beer uh <laughs> during uh during the award ceremony yeah when you win, <laughs> right man that isn't that fun oh it's a blast oh yeah. my god i love that i like the, the the couple days you know coming up to it you know because fishing you know just free fishing and having fun oh, oh my yeah. god i love that i'm i'm turning into a, a green fish dude <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm the same way. I'm lucky enough to live here, so I have access to the Delta. So it's I it's, know. Uh, 
I'm turning the corner. They're on the spawn right now here. So it's, it, the, the, the switch got flipped. So it's, it's looking good. So yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you there. Yeah, man. And and talking more. And thanks again for the invite to be on the the podcast. Yeah. Thanks again, buddy. We'll talk soon. All right. Talk to you later, man. Okay. Bye-bye. It's a guy jeans podcast. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, a mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.